Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us this morning and fulfil your promises that you have made to your servants so that you may be feared. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we pick up again our series in the book of 1 Samuel. After I took a break last week for some annual leave, um, once again I thought it would be helpful for you to be reminded as to where we are in Israelite history, where this incident that occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 23 occurs in the history of the Israelites. Firstly, if you understand the whole of Israelite history, it first starts with Adam and Eve after the creation of the world. God creates Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve, we get, of course, Abraham. Abraham is the grandfather of Israel. From Israel, you get the 12 tribes of Israel because of his 12 sons. They end up in Egypt, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then under Moses, they're brought out of slavery in Egypt. And they're brought into the Promised Land by Joshua. In the Promised Land, they have a series of judges... And you can read about them, of course, in the book of Judges. And then the last of the Judges is seen to be Samuel the prophet. And Samuel the prophet is the one who introduces a king, first king, uh, for the Israelites. And, of course, that is King Saul. Uh, King Saul, of course, is one who drifts from the Lord. And we see that in the book of 1 Samuel. And we've looked at that as we've as I've preached through it on previous occasions. But, of course, Saul then is seen to be replaced by the Lord with David. Saul is still alive, though, and Saul, of course, does not like the fact that David is going to take over his throne. And David at first tries to appease Saul and uh, tries to make peace with him in some way, but gradually Saul becomes more and more hostile towards David, and David is forced to flee. And we've been reading about what is happening as Saul is chasing David and the terrible destruction that he makes of the town of the priests, uh, which we looked at last time. And of course, as, he's, as David is moving around from place to place as he's fleeing, of course, the Israelites are quite concerned because if they harbour David, well, then he may do to that town what he did to the town of the priests. If he will destroy a whole, priest, uh, a whole town of priests, of course, he will destroy a whole town of Israelites. And so this morning we look at how David is moving from place to place and what is happening to him. And there's a number of lessons we could draw from 1 Samuel chapter 23. When I sat down on Tuesday morning and was looking at this passage, so I was trying to work out what is the most helpful thing that I could bring to you from this. Uh, we're far removed from the situation. We're not in the land of Israel. We're not under a kingship. Uh, we're not fellow Israelites uh, as the original readers would have been of this, of this narrative. Uh, what can we learn from this passage? I mean, there's one number of things that we could learn. We could look at the seeking of guidance from the Lord. We see David again and again coming to the Lord and asking for guidance as to what he should do. We can look at the way that he prays. We can look at the subject of prayer. Uh, we could look at the encouragement of friends. It's this wonderful uh, note we have in the, in the middle of the passage of Jonathan, Saul's own son coming and being an encouragement to David in his time of need. And the, the idea of covenants is there again. And we've looked at that previously between Jonathan and David, the covenant that they made with each other. But I thought one of the best lessons that we could draw from this is the lesson that we can see of divine salvation, of God's salvation. It's repeatedly there in the chapter. As the Lord delivers David from the hand of his enemy. And we see it extraordinarily so at the end of the chapter. How does David escape from Saul? As Saul is getting closer and closer to capturing David, as David is hurrying along the side of a mountain, as Saul's men are closing in, he is delivered. Now, how is he delivered? Is it by appeasing Saul, by David's own efforts of trying to make peace with Saul as he's approaching closer and closer? 
Is it by the fact that David can run faster and faster, that he can outrun Saul and his men? No, we see that it's clearly the Lord who delivers David from the hand of Saul. There's an extraordinary event takes place. And we see it in verse 26, 27 and 28. Look with me now at 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 26. It says, Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, the idea may be even that they're running on one side of the mountain, and there's two lots of Saul's men closing in, and he's not going to escape. What happens in verse 27? A messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamaloke. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. How is David delivered from his enemy, King Saul? Well, it's by another enemy coming and fighting his enemy. What enemy is that? Well, it's the Philistines. The Philistines are raiding Saul's kingdom. And so... Saul has to go and protect his kingdom from this other threat. He perceives David as a threat to his kingdom, but this is a far greater threat. The Philistines are raiding the land. And these are the enemy of David as well. The Philistines, who were the Philistines? They were uh, another type of nation altogether on the, on the coast, and they were ones that regularly fought against the Israelites. We see that David, part of the reason David ascended uh, to such a position of prominence in Israel is because he was one who conquered many Philistines. He was the one who killed many Philistines. They're a regular threat to the Israelites, and they're still an enemy of King David. Of, sorry, he's not king at this point, but enemy of David. And we see that at the beginning of the chapter. What is David doing at the beginning of chapter 23 of 1 Samuel? He is fighting against the Philistines. He's defending Israelites from the attacks of the Philistines. And so how is David saved? Well, he's saved as one enemy is attacking him, another enemy comes and attacks his enemy. The picture could be of one where you're running from a lion and what happens just as the lion is about to pounce, another lion suddenly jumps in and attacks that lion that is just about to put his claws into you. That lion has to roll over and over with another lion. And while those lions are fighting you get to escape. That is what has happened to David here. He is not delivered by his own strength. He is hurrying along, yes, but he is going to be caught. It is only as one enemy is brought by the Lord against his enemy that he is able to be delivered. And so this is an extraordinary deliverance. And this is a great lesson for us that God can and he does deliver through extraordinary ways. Why do we need to hear this? Well, humans often trust in salvation to come through ordinary means. Not extraordinary means, but ordinary means. What ordinary means? Well, usually us working harder in some way to solve the problem that we're facing or simply running from it. If we have a problem, we either try to appease the problem to try and resolve it or we simply run from it. If we have financial problems, how are they solved? Well, it's by working harder or running from our financial problems, running from the debtors, that, the people that we owe money to. We run from them. If we have fights with family, with work, colleagues, with neighbourhood, and the next-door neighbours, with the government, how are the, the fights solved? 
Well, we try to appease the person. If we're, we're going to achieve some sort of reconciliation, we try to appease them. Or we run from them. You leave that workplace. You leave that country if you don't like the government. You abandon that family member if you can't deal with them and solve the problem that you have with them. And how are health problems solved? If you have a particular part of your body that is painful, what do you do? Well, you try to appease it. You rest it. You, you apply ice to it. You try and fix the problem. And if you can't, what do you try to do? You just try to ignore it. Sometimes that's what you take tablets for. Just numb the pain, and I ignore it, and hopefully it'll go away. That's how we deal with problems, isn't it? Ordinary means of, I appease it, and if that fails, I just run from it. But God can take care of our problems in extraordinary ways. Ways that we've never even contemplated. Ways that we never saw coming at all. Financial problems can be solved as money drops in out of nowhere. Suddenly, some money is given to you and you were not expecting it from that source at all. Hostility from our enemies can suddenly disappear because God flicks a switch in their brain of some sort and so they're no longer hostile towards you, but instead they're affectionate towards you. And health issues can miraculously disappear. That part of your body that was in great pain suddenly is no longer in great pain. But what is the greatest example of divine salvation through extraordinary means? What is the greatest example of divine salvation through extraordinary means? What do all extraordinary salvations that we experience or we read of, including the one here of David, as he's just about to be caught by his enemy, and we see he is extraordinarily saved as one enemy comes and attacks his enemy. What do they point us to? What do all extraordinary salvations point us to? Well, who is our greatest enemy? Who is mankind's greatest enemy? What is the greatest enemy that mankind has ever faced? It's God himself. God. God is our greatest enemy. Why? Because we are all sinners. Because of our sins, we have rebelled against God and are considered his enemies. We have attacked the king of kings. And so we are outlaws. We are rebels against God. This is what scripture teaches us. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Because of our evil behavior, we're considered enemies of God. Not friends of God, but enemies of God. And why is having God as an enemy a problem? God punishes rebels with death and destruction. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Because of the godlessness and wickedness of men, the wrath of God is being revealed. God's wrath, eternal destruction in hell itself, is what God does to his enemies. So what's our solution to escape the wrath of our greatest enemy? God himself, the greatest lion we'll ever face. What is our solution? Is it work harder to appease God, to try and make peace with God in some way, like we do with our other enemies, like we do with our other problems? We work, 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 work hard, and we can make peace. 
with God, like David tried to do with Saul. Can we do that with God? This is what false religions teach us. False religions teach us to appease God. What do they say to do? Well, they say, do good works, do religious works, do social works. So do works that please God directly, then, of course, do social works, as in uh, do good to your neighbour, to, to, to other fellow men, then God will be pleased with you and he will not be your enemy. That is what they teach. They teach that God will no longer be angry with you because of your sin. Instead, he will be your friend because you've appeased him in some way because of the way that you've been living. But why are they false religions? Well... It's because they don't teach us how desperate the state is of sinful man, how awful our sin actually is, how terrible our rebellion against God is. It's a small matter in the eyes of false religions, and we know this because of the way that they think that we can solve the problem ourselves. They are false religions because they do not teach how desperate our plight is. We are like David running along, and we have nothing to offer the one who is chasing us. And if we try to appease God by doing good works, what are we doing with the great lion as he attacks us? It's like we're throwing spears at the lion to appease him as he attacks us. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. It is actually offensive to God to offer good works to him, as false religions teach. All you're doing is throwing spears at him to try and make him happy, but what will that do to a lion if you throw spears at him? It makes him angrier. And so as you think that I can somehow make God happy with me by doing good works, I can make the lion happy with me, you're actually stirring him up even more. You're simply adding to his wrath against you. And what is the result then of following false religions? The lion catches the followers of false religions and destroys them in hell. But what's another solution that we may think is to escape our great enemy, God, as we consider our sinfulness? Well, what's the other alternative that we do with our problems? If we can't appease the problem, what do we do? We flee. King King Saul was... Uh, David tried to appease King Saul and when he couldn't appease King Saul what did he do? He fled and he's there hurrying along the mountain what do we do with our problems if we can't solve them? we flee from them and that's what people do with God they're conscious of God but what do they do? they suppress the truth about God they flee from God this is what atheism teaches false religions teach you to appease God atheism teaches you (laughs) just He doesn't exist. Flee from any thought of God, any sense of guilt, any sense that I may be destroyed one day for my rebellion against God, push it away. And anyone who mentions God, oppose them. Push them away as well. Don't have anything to do with Christians, and if we can, we can shut down the churches if possible. Flee from God altogether. But is that a solution? As we have God as our enemy because of our sin... No, it's not a solution. What's the problem? Guilt remains. Fear of God continues and death eventually catches up with the atheist as well. And what happens then? Well, the great lion catches the atheist and destroys him for eternity in hell. So what is the solution 
to our problem of the great lion, the great enemy that we face? What is our solution to escape his roar, his teeth, and the destruction that he brings? Well, just as we think we're hopeless, we can't appease the lion, we can't flee from the lion, what happens? God steps in and wrestles God. God steps in and wrestles with God. One enemy against another enemy. One king against another. One lion takes on another lion. What am I talking about? What nonsense am I speaking about when I'm talking about the cross? Who attacked Jesus? Who attacked Jesus and crucified him? Wasn't it Satan? Yes. Wasn't it the Jews? Yes. Wasn't it the Romans? Yes. But who attacked Jesus most of all? It was God himself. The wrath of God was poured out on God at the cross. Our two great enemies attacked one another. Why? Because they desired our salvation. As God attacked God, we, the helpless lambs who had no hope otherwise, were saved from the lion's wrath. All the wrath of God was spent on God himself. And so now, instead of us having to flee from the lions, the lions have actually become our friends and our protectors because there is no more anger, there is no more wrath from God towards us. The roars of the lion, the claws and the teeth that were before coming for us, they're no longer against us because all that wrath, all that anger that we deserve has been met in the great lion, Jesus himself. And this is what the Apostle Paul teaches us. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 5. Turn with me now to Romans chapter 5, page 1116. Page 1116, if you have a church Bible. Romans chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 6. Romans chapter 5, read from verse 6. Page 1116, 1116. The Apostle Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebels... Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by this, his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See what is being taught there? It was not while we were friends of God 
that Jesus took the penalty for our sin. It is while we were enemies of God that God, our great enemy, attacked our other great enemy, God himself, in Jesus Christ. And we are delivered. And what is the result? Well, we praise God. We rejoice in God, it says there in verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We give him praise. Just like David rejoiced and praised God for the extraordinary salvation that he had at that time. We open this morning's service with Psalm 54. Psalm 54, which is found on page 563. Turn with me there now. And we see that this psalm was written at this time of 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23, the events that occur there, uh, David prays about them to the Lord in Psalm 54. And we see that by the uh, inscription at the beginning, the superscription there at verse 1 of Psalm 54. It says, For the director of music with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? So he wrote this at that time when the Ziphites, which is where uh, David was moving around in the desert there, had actually gone to Saul and asked Saul to come down and capture David amongst them. And what was David's only hope at that time? What does he say in this psalm? Look with me at verse 4. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. God is his help. That is his only hope at this time. And so how does David respond to the salvation that he receives at this time? Well, look with me at verse 6. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. Why? For he has delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. David looked in triumph on his foes, both the Philistines and Saul. And so what did he do? Well, he praised God. He rejoiced in his helper. He was in a hopeless state. But now he has been delivered. He has been saved by God himself. And so he gives praise to God. And that is what we do as well. We rejoice in our deliverance. We praise God. And we should do so more so than David. Why? Because the deliverance that we have received is where our lions become our friends. This is where the analogy here in 1 Samuel chapter 23 falls down. Saul doesn't become a friend of David. The Philistines don't become David's friends, although in the next chapter he does befriend some of them. But there's still an ongoing hostility between the Philistines and David. But we actually have, through this extraordinary deliverance of lion versus lion, God versus God, we actually now have the lions on our side because the wrath is gone. So do you know the salvation of the Lord? Or do you still feel guilt? Do you still feel guilt and fear death? Do you feel guilt for your sin? Do you fear the death that is coming? What do such feelings often show? Well, it shows that you're still hurrying along the rock from your great enemy, like David was hurrying along from his great enemy, King Saul. So what are you doing about it? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to try to appease God, the great lion with some good works. Don't you realise that all you're doing is throwing spears at him and making him angrier? 
Or are you simply going to flee from God? You're going to suppress any thought of God, any thought of guilt, any thought of destruction that God may bring upon you? Are you going to ignore the lion as he roars at you, even in your mind? Wake up. Fight and flight don't work. Your sin is too great and your enemy is too strong. Give up all hope in yourself and your own deliverance and trust in Christ Jesus. Believe that God has stopped God for you. That one lion poured out his wrath on another lion, so both become your friends. And then rejoice with God. Rejoice with God and give glory to him. And even if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, go through this process by the power of the Holy Spirit with any guilt you feel. Are you feeling any sense of guilt about your sin this morning that you may have committed yesterday, you may have committed a week ago, you may have committed a month ago, you may have committed a year ago? Don't slip back into your old ways of thinking that, yes, I sinned against God, so now I need to do this, this and this, and then he'll be happy with me. Or I just don't think about, like, don't, stop thinking about that sin. Stop thinking about it. That's fighting and fleeing, fight and flight again, coming up in your mind. And it's easy as a Christian to, yes, yes, Jesus forgave me for all those past sins, but now I've got to appease him for any current sins that I do. We all need to keep coming back to the cross again and again throughout the Christian life because we keep on sinning. But we need to keep coming back and thinking and trusting that Jesus is the one who has paid for all our past, present and future sin. That God's wrath has been spent. One great lion has spent his wrath on another great lion. And then we go through this process and we rejoice again. We rejoice as the burden of guilt is lifted because we know that we will not be punished as our sins deserve. And so we give glory to God. And even if you don't feel guilt this morning because you trust in Christ Jesus, let us never forget our extraordinary salvation. Extraordinary salvation that God has wrought for us. Let us never forget our lost state, our lost state, when we were fleeing from God after all appeasing of him failed, as we hurried along with God's roars in our ears and his teeth about to encircle us. And then let us never forget the cross, never forget the cross, the greatest cosmic battle that has ever been seen on this earth where one great lion was against another great lion, where God was against God himself so that little lambs could be saved. And then never let, let us forget the relief as we realise we are saved. We are completely saved. We should never forget what we felt. What David felt times a billion. He was saved from Saul, he was saved from some Philistines, but we were saved from our greatest of all enemies. And so we give him praise and rejoice in that. And that is why we must never forget this is the source of our joy and our glory for God. This great cosmic battle.
that has taken place so that we could be free. It's more extraordinary than God using the Philistines to deliver David from Saul. How extraordinary is it? It's God fighting God. It's easy to think of the man, Jesus Christ, there and forget that that is God, the God-man. It is God against God. How extraordinary is this? Can we conceive of anything more extraordinary? It blows people's minds and, and false religions say God couldn't do that. Yes, he can, and he has. It is extraordinary deliverance. How extraordinary is it? It's death killing death. A death killed death. One of my favourite titles in Christian literature is by John Owen, and it's called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Profound. Extraordinary. You couldn't make this up. The death of death in the death of Christ. There is power in blood. When we think of blood, we think bad. And if someone's bled a lot and dead, they're useless to us. But there is power in the blood of the God-man from 2,000 years ago to save you today if you still need saving from the great enemy. And so we sing Jones's hymn, this hymn that we'll sing in a moment. Look with me at verse 1 there of the final hymn there. It says, Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you, O evil, a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. People outside the church don't get this. How can you sing about blood with joy? No one rejoices about blood. We do. Why? Because in the blood of Christ, there is extraordinary salvation. So we sing extraordinary songs, strange songs, but we sing them because we understand that there is power in the blood, wonder working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. The deliverance we have is so extraordinary because our great enemy has become our greatest friend. All was clearly lost but for God. Now the lions are our friends. And so we rejoice. It's extraordinary, this salvation. It's extraordinary because it's God fighting God. But it's death killing death. It's power in blood. It is Lions becoming friends. And it's extraordinary because we can rejoice and praise God no matter what other problems we face. Problems with money, problems with other people, problems of decaying bodies, aching bodies, dying bodies, they pale. Those problems pale next to the deliverance that we have from our past enemy. God himself. And so it's extraordinary. We give extraordinary praise. We have extraordinary joy. People don't understand, Christians. You can have horrible things happen to you and yet still rejoice. Why? Because we know that there is something that is far more horrible that should have happened to us. But we've had an extraordinary deliverance. So we give extraordinary praise and have extraordinary joy. 
because of the extraordinary work of God. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God of justice who hates sin. But you also mercifully poured out your wrath for sin on your son, for the sins of your people. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for forgetting what an extraordinary salvation we have received and for not rejoicing and praising you as we should. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us to remember that you were once our enemy and we were in a completely hopeless state. We were not able to appease you. We were not able to flee from you. And the cords of death were coming for us. But Lord, you are now our friend because of your grace. And so we rejoice and give you glory. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is still being pursued by yourself, who is still your enemy, oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive them in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.